Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So, this is the fourth podcast and the sixth day of the Cannes Film Festival. Welcome to Truth and Movies, a Little White Lives podcast, live from the Croisette. I'm currently here on the Press de Terrasse, which is a new little enclave that I've just minutes ago discovered or been introduced to by my special guest, Mr. Danny Kasman from MUBI, who is the director of content over there. Danny, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, so, yes, uh, it's... Um, a little different today in that in Cannes over the first five days it's been radiant sunshine and today it's been driving rain. Um, we, we got soaked this morning and every, everything's a bit cooler and a bit quieter which is kind of kind of nice actually. So it feels like there's been a purge of sorts. <laughs> it's oddly tranquil because we just came out of a red carpet premiere and in maybe 30 minutes there's like another red carpet premiere and you'd think there'd be a lot of hubbub going on out here but instead it seems... It's very nice. Yeah, Calm. no, I think if, if, if by the end of the podcast you start hearing Sex Bomb by Tom Jones in the background, <laughs> that's, that'll be the red carpet because pro- we're probably sat about 30 metres away from it. So, But we've got Danny on the podcast today to have a chat about some of the films that we've been watching over the weekend and over the last three or four days. Some sort of old hands who've been in competition many times and some newcomers uh, and two of the three female directors who have been selected for this year's competition. Firstly, though, we'd love to talk about a uh, specific strand of the Cannes Film Festival, which is not part of the, I guess, the central official selection, as they call it. It's known as the the Cannes de Realisateurs. Your French is better than mine. Yeah, (laughs) which stands for the director's fortnight. And this year, it's the, I believe, 50th edition, and right. which has, has been a cause for celebration. And they've had lots of their kind of old alumni involved in making a daily fanzine. And they've got people like Jim Jarmusch and Naomi Kawase, no less, doing playlists for them as we're waiting for the films to start. Yeah, I was listening to that Jarmusch playlist at, I think it was 8.30 a.m. this morning. <laughs> Eric B. and Rakim was great. <laughs> so... Um, at MUBI, you're, you're in a partnership with the um, Kanzen and you're celebrating its 50th anniversary. Um, as a frequent festival goer, why is the Kanzen important? Sure, I mean, it's a great question and I think maybe just to take a step back for a second, you were saying it's a separate strand and I think one of the things that many um, people 
film lovers or festival followers uh, don't really realize about Cannes is people say the Cannes Film Festival or Cannes and actually what they're talking about are several different entities that happened at the same time in the town of Cannes. The, the main thing that everyone thinks about, the red carpet, the competition, that's, as you say, the official selection, uh, which has many sort of subcomponents. There's an out-of-competition section. There's the opening and closing night films. There's a Cannes Classics, which are um, you know, restored prints or DCPs of classic films. There's the In Certain Regards section. There's all these subsections and so forth. But in the same city, at the same time, there's three separate festivals that are technically unrelated entirely to Cannes, which is so baffling. It's like, it's, so, it's such a unique idea to come to this city and attend a festival, and actually you're attending many festivals, if you so choose, because many journalists, you know, mostly stick to the official selection, stick to the competition. But also in the same town, there's uh, the Director's Fortnight, there's the Critics Week, Semaine de la Critique, and there's also an even smaller event called Essid, which uh, specializes in French titles. But of those sections, the, the Director's Fortnight is the most important, even though actually the Semaine de la Critique um, is a bit older. I think, I think this year is its 57th anniversary, but the Fortnight is celebrating its 50th anniversary, and the Fortnight is um, really sort of a paradigmatic festival in that it was created in May 68 as a sort of, in contradistinction to the, the official Cannes Film Festival, which was sort of canceled halfway through due to the protests um, surrounding the labor strikes and the student strikes in uh, France in May. And um, as those strikes went on, um, there were sort of more calls and organizations for the filmmakers to withdraw their films officially from um, Cannes. And this sort of context inspired this, uh, you know, it's almost like renegade startup festival. Um, it's such a bold idea to start at the festival that's the most important film festival in the world, uh, a simultaneous festival that says, no, 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 like we're choosing the films that are, that are of the moment, that are engaged. Um, and, you know, now it's its 50th year, so you can look back at the kind of films they've been selecting and, and you know, see that, you know, they've uh, shown works by Herzog and Brisson and Oshima and Gorel and uh, Bruno de Mont and, and so on and so forth, uh, names that started young when they were debuting there are now venerated. Um, and, you know, to this day, um, they're, sh they're showing sort of um, works that are both by recognized, established auteurs and also new sort of emergent filmmakers. Uh, that spirit um, lives on and I think one of the great things about it is it is you just you see it as a distinctive difference. Is there any rivalry there? I'd be fascinated to know what the politics are between them and I think last year was probably a better example than this year because last year when the official selection announced their competition it was like pretty good there was like names we recognized and, and films we wanted to see but then when the Fortnite announced its lineup it had all these sort of major established filmmakers that one associates with competition there was Bruno Dumont with his uh, young Joan of Arc film there was Claire Denis with her Juliette Binoche movie Let the Sunshine In there was Philippe Garel with uh, Lover for a Day big name films, really important art cinema that one would think would be in the main section, but we're not. And so, you know, it creates in our minds this sort of like, what are these conversations? Who, who's fighting for what premieres? And it's this sort of inside baseball, like uh, gossip as to why a film is premiering in the fortnight, why it's premiering in uh, official selection, why it's a, a premiering out of competition in the official selection. And this is kind of a little bit related to the Netflix Cannes Film Festival controversy that erupted earlier. I think one of the cliches of discussing Cannes, when you're in Cannes especially, is this notion of 
the journalists taking this kind of higher view of things and trying to sort of second guess why certain films are screened in, in, in a certain place. So you'll see a bad competition film and say, oh, that shouldn't be in the competition. Then you'll see a really good Uncertain Regard film and say, well, that should have been in the competition. And the reality is, behind closed doors, it's business, it's, it's deals, it's money changing hands, it's if you show this, you can show that. Mm-hmm. And, you Absolutely. know, it's, it's, a, it's a world I don't believe we'll ever truly understand. No, but, but it's uh, one that's, as, as you point out, is really fascinating and not just so much for the, you know, abstract notion of uh, this film's better, it should be here, this film's worse, why is it here? But, but there's, there's a real sort of mystery to film festival selection. I think the art world, sort of the idea of curation in general, and no festival cultivates that mystery quite like the Cannes Film Festival, whose programmers are um, sort of, as you say, behind closed doors, whose choices are a bit opaque, um, and whose choices are probably, for the competition anyway, the most important choices in the film world. And yet, why exactly this film and not that film? And or why this filmmaker and not that filmmaker? Or this country and not that country? Or this gender or not that gender? All these questions are not ones that they want to answer. And they just put it out there and they leave it to us to judge. So, uh, director's fortnight. Yeah. Just just to add that movie are celebrating the director's fortnight. Yeah, yeah. Fortnight. We're, we've we've been collaborating with the fortnight for several years now. In fact, some of our theatrical releases that we picked up to release both in the UK and the US have premiered at the fortnight. They're they're really close to our hearts and spirit. This sort of um, alternative spirit. I mean, I wouldn't want to analogize movie to what they're doing, but what we like to think of ourselves at movie is that we're not the big. Uh, platform. We're trying to do something um, more idiosyncratic, specialized, unique, and exciting for the audience, rather than sort of standardized. And, and uh, so it was sort of a natural partnership to work with them. And we've shown and highlighted many of their films on Ruby over the years. But specifically for the 50th anniversary, um, we're partnering with them to show films on the platform in many different countries through their history, because I think what's important about the 50th anniversary is not just the recent titles, as I said, like for example, Lover for a Day, the Philip Gorell's film that premiered in the fortnight last year, we put that out in cinemas in uh, the UK and the US and then um, put it on movie. Um, but I think it's important also to go back through the history and see which filmmakers originated there, because there's, there's ones like Gorell, Gorell now who's in his 60s, he was showing films uh, in the fortnight in the 70s. And, and I think seeing that continuity of history of how they um, find talent and, and introduce them to the press and then introduce them to audiences and, and, and sort of foster that spirit of auteurship. Um, so it's how, it's how festivals cultivate talent hmm. in a way, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's what we're, you know, I think you and I, uh, as cinephiles, we come here and we're excited for the names that we know in the selection, whether it's uh, Nuri Bilgachelan or Lars von Trier or the Han Solo film. But like, actually most exciting is all these films by debut filmmakers, filmmakers from countries where we rarely get to see these films, uh, second-time filmmakers are finally getting a step up to the spotlight, um, and encountering those films, especially in these sidebar sections that are have a bit more adventurous spirit, are attracted to a little bit more risk-taking filmmaking, um, and that's really the exciting thing for being at a festival. So just to add, if you get a chance, have a look on YouTube for the trailer for the, the, fest, the director's fortnight, because it's got this wonderful sort of uh, clip montage and stills montage set to this kind of twinkly piano music and it's a really lovely way to start a film. We were both at the, the, the director's fortnight this very morning to very see uh, a new film by the uh, <laughs> French director Gaspar Noé, a proudly French film, as, as, <laughs> as the film announces in, in, a, in an intertitle at the beginning, called Climax. I assume many of your listeners know Gaspar Noé is an Argentine-French filmmaker, super 
provocative, best known for Irreversible, but has also been in Cannes with Enter the Void, and a couple years ago, his 3D um, sort of softcore love film <laughs> called Love. And um, I actually hadn't realized he was making a film, and I think this film called Climax is made under a great deal of secrecy. The, there was uh, basically no official synopsis. There was no footage released in anticipation of it. People really went into this screening not knowing what this was going to be, other than obviously because it's, in a way, something extreme probably, highly stylized. And I, I think actually that the atmosphere of that encounter is part of really what makes this festival special, or just festivals in general special. And in a way, I, I hate to compare Noé to Jean-Luc Godard, but two days ago we saw the new Godard film, and that's a film that also we, even though we know this name, we know his work, we went into the cinema and the lights went down, and we had no idea what that was going to be, no idea what that was going to be. And it, it was true of the Noé film too, which, I don't want to spoil a story, I'm not even sure there is a story per se, but it's a 90-minute party, essentially, mm. and I think the film that it made me think of the most is Louis Bunuel's Exterminating Angels, mm. which is about a, a group of uh, bourgeois Mexican um, diners who come to a dining party and then mysteriously can't leave, and then the party degenerates into chaos. And in a way, this is an adaptation of that sort of idea of being you know, a, a group from a certain milieu being in a place and then stuck in that place with sort of um, what's identified as mid-90s. I don't know why the credits state this event happens in 1996. Mid-90s sort of dance party, dance rehearsal um, group where everyone uh, performs this amazing musical number to the camera and this amazing long take of uh, maybe 10, 15 minutes of dancing to house music. And then they finish their rehearsal and they start just hanging out and drinking and uh, sort of dancing casually. and then. They can't something make, happens. They, they, yeah, something <laughs> happens. Uh, they sort of can't leave, and the party degenerates, and things get a little crazy. And um, because it's no way, the, the film itself goes a little crazy as well. Mm. Um, I must say, I wasn't totally bowled over by the film myself. Yeah. I mean, I think the No Way Faithful will be very happy with this one. I mean, it's fairly curt. I mean, it's ni- 95 yeah. minutes, so he's most of his films are running at, like well over two hours, and. But yeah, I, I totally agree that it's got this extraordinary kind of almost MGM musical single take mm. where it's foregrounding the kind of human aspect of dancing and body movement. And it's a very sort of rare, quite sort of earnestly humane moment in, in yeah. his kind of oeuvre. And then it's kind of weird because he shows you these amazingly talented people and then he kind of stops after a a, quite a short time and it kind of yeah the, the, the sort of the drama happens yeah. and I don't know it's kind of like take it or leave it I guess yeah I mean personally I'd probably leave it I, several of my friends I was surprised to find really liked it because you know it's one of those movies and I, there's probably a secret subgenre of these movies and I don't think anyone's accurately labeled that genre but it's movies that are um, describing a, an unpleasant experience and then want to sort of put the audience in that experience. So for this movie, I, th- I feel like this sort of rehearsal turned party um, becomes sort of this hellish space that, that no one can leave and is trapped and no one knows what's really going on. And I think that experience is it intended to be also sort of projected back on the audience and that we're stuck in this party with these people and don't know who's who and what's what and really what's going on. And I found it a little bit torturous, I must admit. I mean, his formal dexterity is really incredible. Long takes, the colors and the lighting is is remarkable. But you said first dance sequence has remarkably sort of human quality to it. And I think the thing that I always find missing with his films is I really don't think he's really interested in people per right. se. Um, and I find that 
uh, maybe dismaying. It's just so much technique and um, so much immersion into a world where you're following people and watching them do things. And all the people are kind of unpleasant and mean and nasty. And you're watching them do mean and nasty things and be unpleasant. And I'm not quite sure what all that suffering is for. I know. It seems crazy that we're going to have a very short amount of time now because they're actually like, if you can hear those chairs rustling in the background. Kicking us out soon. They're kicking us out soon. Probably so. doing a photo shoot on this terrace Exactly. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, Jean-Luc Godard's The Image Book, which is his latest feature playing in the competition just a little side note is he wasn't present physically at the festival but he was present via Skype or was it FaceTime? I it was I FaceTime yeah. so at uh, the press conference a gentleman held up a phone and he fielded questions <laughs> and he seemed in on, like cheery form <laughs> um, but the film itself is difficult to describe. It's a collage movie of found footage, of film clips, of newsreel, of um, like JPEGs from the internet. It's made to look purposely bad. It's made to sound purposely bad. He's experimenting with sound design. In a way, it's kind of similar. <laughs> in a very loose way it's similar to Gaspar Noe in that it is go on (laughs) (laughs) they're both of sensory experiences oh absolutely do you think you need to know Goddard's work to appreciate this new one maybe it's better if you don't because as you're saying the form of the film this collage of clips and um, dialogue from movies and abrupt um, insertions of songs and uh, Goddard's own sort of voiceover um to continue your Gaspar Noé comparison, it's a sort of overwhelming sensory experience, and I don't think it's predicated on knowledge of his body of work. What it's predicated on is an investment in that images have meaning, like because what this collage does, it's 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 like an essay in image and sound form. It's making an argument by assembling clips of old movies, Hollywood movies, French movies, Japanese movies, news footage from uh, World War II, from Vietnam War, from uh, Yugoslavia. It's very sort of war-focused. Also a lot of um, ISIS videos from the internet. And it's, it's hoping that you have sort of faith in the meaning that, that images can transmit to you in their beauty and in their terror, that you can learn from images. And so when you watch a movie like this or any movie or any news report, that you understand the sort of uh, relationship between the camera and the reality it's filming and then the image that comes between that camera and that reality because once you sort of lose touch with the power of the camera to record actual events, whether atrocities or moments of beauty, then suddenly cinema doesn't have meaning, uh, television doesn't have meaning, journalism doesn't have meaning, and you become sort of unmoored in a world where there's no um, culpability for actions. And so I don't think you need to see like uh, Breathless or any of his maybe more more recent work that's a little bit more in this sort of uh, cerebral essay mode. I think it's more just if you're interested in um, how movies and news tell the story of the times we live in through the 20th century and the 21st century. That's really what that movie's about. Um, I have to admit, I found it incredibly dense and like overwhelmingly opaque at times, but still like invigorating because the form the movie takes is somebody watching other movies, watching the news, and trying to make sense of the world we live in and, and the way that images speak about that world. Well, Danny, I think we're going to have to wrap up now. Uh, they really are, the, I rambled on the, too long. T- time is, is uh, running out here, but um, thanks very much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. I'm going to let you, let you carry on and go and have a nice uh, stodgy dinner. No no, doubt. I'm going to have some gelato. It's uh, so nice. Okay. <laughs> so uh, if you uh, let us know what you think of the podcast, um, you can email us at uh, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or we're uh, on Twitter at, L- at LWLies. Uh, and this has once again been a seven digital production. Thank you.
to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.